looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the Shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am Jamie. And this is Dan. And this is Patrick. And this is Micah. Micah's back, everybody. Yay. A lot of applause. Yay. Yay. It's been like seven months. Last November was when we had Micah on, and her show didn't even make it on the air. So. Oh, so you guys <laughs> just have to wait for it. Yeah, although if you anyone was listening to Gethsemane, Micah did make an appearance Boom. on Gethsemane it for did. a split second. Just a second. Um, but it but was a big second. Let's be clear. It was a big it's an second. second. It was a, a big very, second. It was a very importantly. And, big and we second. did put big that. Big we did put that Rachel big episode big on Patreon as like just an extra thing. So it is on there for those of you who support us on Patreon. Thank you very there. much. You can listen to that sure. uh, unedited raw episode. And anyone that is interested. Oh hey, you know what else is on Patreon? Dan. Oh, I wrote them down. As of this recording comes out, we will have Metropolis. Ooh, what else is on Patreon? Right yeah. Now? Stand by. I uh, I wrote all of this down. Someone stall for me. Okay. Well, there's not that many. We just we just had an Annihilation. Machina come out. Godzilla, okay. King of the Monsters, Ooh. Interstellar, Under the Skin, T1 versus T2, Jaws. I'm yelling. I don't know why I'm yelling. Ex Machina <laughs> and uh, We're Met- very exciting. Metropolis. Boom. And those are coming out every two weeks. And you can go somewhere for more information. Patrick, help me out. Go to perfectorganism.com slash support or bladeburnerpodcast.com slash support or just look for us on Patreon. No matter what happens, all you need to do is sign up at the $2 level and up. Emphasis on the up if you're interested. (laughs) And you will have immediate access to all of that plus other bonus audio content, early access to some episodes, some of our Kipplecast, some of the pre-roll that we do sometimes. Um, and you will be kept in the loop as a part of this family because uh, you already are part of the family because you're listening to it and because we love you guys so Join the join it officially and sign up for Patreon. Yeah, but mostly we're focusing on giving you two whole extra episodes per month on other movies. We focus mostly on sci-fi movies we love, but it's not exclusive. We'll branch out into other things. So for a dollar an episode per month, you get to them. It's a pretty good deal. Forgive me for being personal, but you're an extremely handsome man. And usually handsome men play heroes. Why did you choose to play a villain? Well, uh, I don't think this is a villain. I think you, uh, what is wrong with a man who doesn't, I mean, from the point where they start chasing him, he just wants to live a little longer. He hasn't done so much harm. Uh, You don't see him do any harm, uh, and then they start chasing him down. well, he has to fight once in a while because uh, that's survival. Um, he wants. Uh, uh, all right, but we have a different point of view then. Today we are here to record our long overdue tribute to Roy Batty from Blade Runner, 
as everyone knows, or most people know, Rudger Hauer passed away Friday, I believe it was July 19th, um, the day I was at San Diego Comic-Con, and he passed away sort of under cover of night in his home country of, where is it? Is it the Netherlands? Is it Sweden, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? No, 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 Netherlands. Netherlands. Is it the Netherlands? Okay. And uh, we didn't, the news of his passing didn't come out until essentially Comic-Con was over because I think that was sort of dominating fandom slash entertainment news all weekend. And I felt, I think that they felt like they needed to wait. And uh, we released an episode hosting Paul Salmon, discussing his thoughts and his memories with Rudger Hauer. But we wanted to release our own sort of uh, tribute to Roy Batty and the impact of his character in our lives in fandom. And so that's what we're here to do tonight. If there's one character that we hear about the most, at, the, at least at this point, and maybe it's partly because of, of Howard's death, but I feel like Roy Batty comes up so frequently in conversations about Blade Runner. Just earlier today on Fields of Quanta, I posted a, uh, a little call for people's favorite moments that nobody talks about in the film. And like half of them are moments of Roy, whether it's little passing dialogue, little exchanges that he has, looks that he gives people. That character is so complicated and so multifaceted. And I think he is, I mean, he's so fascinating that even the actor who originated the role doesn't know how to talk about him. And we found out that at length in the previous episode uh, with Paul, you know, it was, uh, I guess two episodes ago at this point, he, uh, even, even, uh, even uh, Rucker Howard himself, as he was portraying the character, felt the character pulling away in a direction that he wasn't prepared for, becoming, going from being an appliance to being poetry, right? And talking about the poet within him emerging, which was one of my favorite moments from that exchange. That uh, that that although Howard would talk about him as like a refrigerator or like a you know a mailbox or something, that he would say that there was a poet within that refrigerator, you know. And I think it's it's amazing. It's almost like he was confused. And we also found out with Hampton Fancher that Fancher likewise did not anticipate the character going in the direction that it ended up going, and was sort of in awe of how it ended up and how Howard ended up completely just transmogrifying that character. And I think as um, as a fandom and as individual viewers ourselves with relationships to this film, Roy is us because he is on such a complex journey that we never get to the end of it. So every time we re-engage with the movie, every time we revisit it, every time we talk about it, we just drop a little uh, stone in this body of water that ripples outwards and never finds the shore. And I just think he's uh, just, an, just an amazing character to get into. It's hard to follow that, you know. Um, you get I used to it. That's why you're marrying me. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can probably hear my eyes rolling, right? Yeah, um, oh yeah. <laughs> basically. So I guess to start off, I mean, just, just to start off my, the thing that stays with me most about Roy Batty um, is the physical performance that Rutger Hauer gave. It's, it's absolutely spellbinding, I think, to me. And as a person who had a career with acting, it's just, I just love watching the wheels turn in his head with each scene. It's amazing. And um, I don't know, I think just the, the looks that he's able to say so many things, like, I mean, I can't quote, I mean, besides obviously the, the more famous dialogue that he has that he created, um, I can't really quote Roy as much as I can I could maybe do the other um, characters but I think a lot of it for me comes from like I said his physical performance and the way he speaks to other characters in scenes around him 
with just looks from just like gazes or, or things. I don't know the way he exists in that world is so powerful and fiery. It's, it's very scary to me and it's exciting and um, I'm rambling. So yeah. <laughs> All we do is ramble on the show. You don't have to worry. I know that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I just had to stop it before it went down the hill. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you guys. I mean, we'll get more into the nitty gritty about his dialogue and particular parts of his performance. We're going to play some voicemails and some Facebook messages that people sent in. So we have a lot to talk about. But um, I think one of the more interesting things based on sort of the details you guys are mentioning in his acting and in his development of the character is that it's kind of a reminder within maybe a quintessential reminder within that film that no one person really had a handle on how that film was going to turn out and how exceptional it was going to be. I mean, maybe Ridley Scott is the person who sort of had the most of the vision within his head, but we know that very famously he also turned around and looked at the footage and was like, I don't really know what the hell it is. It's awesome. But like, we need to figure this out because it was such a collection of, just genius level artistry put together that they didn't really know where they were going. I mean, I mean, he obviously had a vision, et cetera. And so I think um, Rutger Hauer's portrayal of Roy is very similar in that way, in that he had instincts as an actor and like, he didn't understand why he was giving Roy the ability to write poetry, but he felt that that's what he needed to do. And he just let it come out and that's what happened. And again, when you hear him talk about the character, he has a different interpretation of his own character than a lot of people that love this film have. And so I think, uh, again, he's a great example of sort of the magic and the spell of that for, of that first Blade Runner film where it was much, much bigger than the sum of his part of its parts. And I think, um, Roy's prefer, uh, Rucker's performance is like that as well, especially considering how many people wrote the dialogue and the fact that he adjusted it and obviously had direction, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think he's a good representation of that sort of bigger theme playing out in the film. And, and it's not an accident that we all keep tripping up on the roof because I keep saying Roy versus Rucker too. <laughs> right. Every single time it's, it's, it's so hard, even though we've seen Rucker Howard in so many films outside of Blade Runner, I, I, I cannot separate him from that role and he couldn't separate himself from it. And he was just as mystified by its impact on people as we are. You know, he, he would frequently say in interviews, like I believe um, Dan, when you uploaded the previous, uh, the, the show in memoriam with Paul, that uh, in the interview, he was talking about how it's wonderful that for three plus decades, his character has kind of defined the way most of the world views him. And he did not, have any reason to believe that that would have been the case at the time. He just kind of accidentally created something completely indelible. What I hope we get to do tonight a little bit is to unpack some of the reasons why he's so indelible and what it is about not only that character, but, but about art in general that creates indelibility. So what it is when something breaks through in some unexpected way and becomes completely unforgettable and becomes a waypoint after which there's no going back. Like, like I will never be able to think about Blade Runner in any way that does not include that performance of that character. And I, I would really love to unpack why. And one other thing I just want to throw out there before we go more formally into this episode, um, it's something that I was, I was trying to sneak in when we had Paul on and there wasn't really a chance because he was giving us so much incredible stuff. But I think something that he had mentioned on that episode that stuck with me is how spontaneous... Rucker Hauer was. I, again, almost said Roy Batty again. How spontaneous <laughs> Rucker was as a person, as a performer, as an artist in general. And as Micah knows better than I do, but I also know a little bit from my acting background, uh, which is not as illustrious as her as I'm not trying to say it is, but she'll, she'll, she'll <laughs> give me a look. 
Um, but from the acting that I did do in the training that I went through, a lot of it comes down to being open to spontaneous um, reactions and inflections. And when something for pushes you in a certain direction to know to trust that instinct and to, and to try to explore it. So I, I think part of it is that Rucker Hauer's background in experimental theater coming from a family of artists mm -hmm. growing up in a world where once he was kind of done with his marine life, he ended up kind of going whole hog into art. Um, into experimental Danish theater and stuff like that. I think part of what was so great about that is that it inculcated in him this sense of exploration and openness that anything is possible and to kind of throw himself with abandon into it. When you take acting classes, a lot of the, the earlier ones, especially the ones about like movement and theater and dance and things, they center around like, for example, allow yourself to become, you know, uh, like a river or like allow yourself to become a pig or to sort of just do these, these funny moments where you can kind of release yourself a little bit and inhabit some other space. The idea being that if you can do that openly without being a parody of yourself and without trying to put on the clothes of something, but actually get at the heart of what something actually is, that you can inhabit a role more effectively. And I get the sense that Rucker Hauer, again, I almost said worry about it, that Rucker Hauer could do that just on a dime, that he could be given a, a role and he could just take it through all of these different vessels. And, um, and sometimes he would surprise himself, like, you know, when he would interrupt a scene with humor, like we heard from Paul, that was just, he was feeling inspired to do something and he knew enough about himself to trust it. And I think that the character of Roy Batty is so tied up in Rucker Howard's background in experimental theater and in being open to spon spontaneity. And that the fact that Blade Runner was such a strange film and a film that never went in a literal or linear direction during the filming process, I think was like so well suited to his performance style. And I think that's something that I just kind of wanted to bring up to, as a, a little uh, a, amendment to the previous uh, time we talked about him. Authenticity and sort of how genuine you come off as an artist in general, whether you're a musician, poet, artist, whatever it is, that's what I always find common ground with in the art that I love. The more I'm really believing that the art that the artist is putting out is really what's truly inside of them, um, which of course, you know, when you're playing music, you don't necessarily have to play a different person. It's just sort of like your emotions coming out. Whereas with acting, you have to actually embody that other character that you're trying to put out there in the world. But, um, I think we can just see it when someone's phoning it in or just isn't invested in it. Um, so that's step one. And then two is being spontaneous and allowing yourself to sort of feel the character. But I think it's impossible to fake really. And when you see it come through like that, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, Roy Batty's character and Rucker Howard's performance is I think one of the quintessential examples of someone really embodying that role. And I think that's a lot of what we see. One little quick thing that I just, I want to bring up that you're reminding me of is when we interviewed the amazing lead sound editor for Blade Runner 2049. My favorite part of that interview, which is still, if people haven't listened to that, go back to like episode 24 or something. Yeah, Mark Mangini. It's just an, it's just an amazing conversation with him. Um, one of my favorite moments in that was when he told us about that huge kick drum noise that happens when Kay goes into the Las Vegas desert when he gets out of the spinner. And that's something that has stayed with me a lot in my own art since then because it was a spontaneous reaction to an artistic continuum that didn't reveal itself until they acted on it. And what I mean by that is, for people who haven't heard that episode or people who don't remember it, uh, so, so Denis Villeneuve was sitting in the editing room with Mark Mangini, with, uh, I think the editor was in there, who I can't think of, is it Joe, uh, Walk, not Joe Walker? Man, we have not talked about 2049 in a long oh, time. 
I think it was the editor, um, and also ben, Benjamin Walfish was in there. And they were they they had Ben Walfish had written a music cue for this moment. The moment, in case anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, is when Kay emerges from his spinner, and it's this incredible yellow haze that Deacon's lit beautifully in the studio, but it looks like it's just in the open expanse of this irradiated desert. And Kay steps out, and there's just this enormous booming noise. Was that right? Joe Walker. Joe Walker? Yeah! Still got it. And they had scored that. Ben Walfish had written music for it, which as a composer myself, I can say that's like, takes work. That's not, you know, easy to do. And in the studio, they had a marker, like a click marker going off when that scene changed as like a cue that this was like a new setting. So like, okay, they got to like load the next presets. And the click noise was so interesting that, that Denis Villeneuve stopped everything. and was like, hey, wait, wait a minute. We just hear the click noise. And everybody in that moment, even though they had already scored it, they had already come up with Foley effects for it, they had already done all of this other stuff, decided that's what we're going to do. We're going to scrap all of it, and we're going to have an extremely loud click track noise basically there. And to me, um, that is why, to me, that was such a Blade Runner moment. And that was why I asked Mark Mangini about it, because to me, I, I could not imagine a universe myself creatively where I would have arrived at that moment on my own. It's not something I could have planned for. It's not something that makes any sense narratively or dramatically until you see it for the first time. And then once you do see it, you're like, oh my God, there's no other way that that would have worked. Like if you try to think about that with some kind of scoring behind it, it would be so much less effective. And Batty is a great example of a character who is treated continually like that. It's a continuous process where Ruckerhauer is finding moments on this continuum as it reveals itself, as the film's coming together, and then goes so all in on it that it's almost cartoonish. It's so over the top and it's so intense. And he's so diabolical and so seductive and so crazy and so suave. And he's all these crazy things. And it's happening in real time because he's reacting to the continuum that he can see that we do not know at the beginning of that film because they didn't know it either. Um, I want to throw it over to Jamie for a minute, if that's all right. We, you know, we've heard you talk at great lengths about other characters in this film. I feel like you don't talk too much about about Roy Batty. Um, I, I know haven't, you love actually. the character, but I, I'm curious. What are some of your thoughts on him, and um, and why do you think it is that you uh, don't talk about him as much as as other fans might? Well, I'll tell you. When I was young, when I was a teenager, I think I was 15. I've said before when I saw Blade Runner for the first time, and for me. Roy Batty's character, I remember my first instinct or first sort of knee-jerk reaction was that he was beautiful. He was seductive, like you were saying, he's sexy. Like just at the end, he's in the spandex and you see all of his body. I mean, it's not graphic, but I just remember noticing how beautiful he was as a man. And those were my first impressions. And Roy is is really an interesting character and I think Roy only Roy has a parallel his only other parallel in that film is Rachel but Roy commands like I don't know about you guys but for me when Roy's on screen everything else goes silent everything else goes quiet it doesn't matter what is Roy saying what is Roy doing um, but I've had a hard time with him not not so much a hard time with him like I think the essence of who he is He's doing what Deckard isn't doing. He's trying to live his life. He's he's not taking for granted what he sees Deckard taking for granted. That sort of that sort of dialogue they're having that they're not having, but they are having at the end. Like live your life, buddy. That's basically what he's saying. Live, live. Um, and I think that there's a beautiful poetry to that. Um, and obviously, it it comes off audibly. It comes off visually from him. But I'm also I also find myself 
having trouble liking someone who's so destructive, um, liking or admiring a character that takes human life. Um, I, I have, um, I have moral ambiguity with that. Um, even though, and I, I try to kind of relate it to like, um, real world things for myself. Like when there's times when people have made me, if I'm not in a good space emotionally in my headspace, and something's pissing me off that I'm saying, Patrick, you and I went through that where I was kind of being bitchy with you. Um, but what I was noticing is because you're free. Roy brings out that same thing for me too when I'm watching him where his freedom sort of freaks me out a little bit. And of course the freedom to murder people is very different than the freedom to walk down the street or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, but I have, it's a complex thing. I, I don't know. We, we've discussed before where we feel something, but we're not sure if we should feel that way because of all, all these certain, certain circumstances. So Roy is a character that I, I, I much of the same issue I have with, ex machina I have with Roy like I don't know how to feel about him like like I found this picture and I, I uploaded it to the, the group chat right of 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 uh, Rudger Hauer you almost said Roy Batty didn't you I did I did yeah um, you did <laughs> and like his hair is bleached it looks like some type of outtake from the set where he's smiling and he's just luminous and beautiful um, and as people, we get caught up in beauty. We get caught up in, you know, oh, this, you know, like he's beautiful or she's beautiful and sort of what that means. Um, but Roy, I'm just conflicted about it. I don't really know how to feel about him, to be honest with you. So I don't really talk about him. It's easier for me to talk about a character like Rachel that I can relate with um, who is sort of, she's sort of not one thing, but she's not a bad guy. That's for sure. For sure. De uh, Deckard is more ambiguous, much like Roy. Roy and Deckard are similar people, um, except for Roy, Roy has freedom and Deckard does not. That's sort of the, the battle that they're waging. So I don't really, I can't really wrap this up in a bow except for to say that he is fascinating. Um, he is beautiful. He is deadly. He is amoral. But at the same time, I also think about Roy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with The Lord of the Flies. In that film or in the book, you have these children sort of going crazy because what do children do when they're unsupervised they go nuts why do they go nuts because they don't have a set of rules they don't have a set of structure and boundaries in place children need that children want that and so i try to reconcile roy a little bit where he's a child and he's killing people not because he's a murderer but because he's a child yes he might not be a physical child but emotionally he is a physical child um, he's a child internally. So he's doing these things that are morally ambiguous ambiguous because that's what children do. And even though I know that, it's still hard for me to sort of embrace him fully. I think I embrace the poet of who he is. Um, I embrace who he aspires to be. Um, but it ends there. And it's difficult for me to process Roy and know how to sort of embrace. And to be honest with you, I have as much difficulty with Roy as I do with Joy, as I do with Deckard. Um, it's just these characters that aren't as I do with, like I mentioned earlier, with uh, Alicia Vikander's role in Ex Machina. I can't remember her character's name right now. Um, but Ava. Because I just, Ava, yeah, I don't know. And maybe that's probably the intent. I think it's okay to not know how to feel, to sort of not wrap everything up. But for me, it is really, I don't know if I feel kind of not guilty, but like, 
how do I feel about this guy? Because if I say, oh, I love him, what does that say about me? Because he's also a killer, you know? Yeah. Uh, what, what you were making me think about at the beginning of this topic and then continuing through what you've been talking about in terms of moral ambiguity and struggling with the fact that someone's a killer is um, reading a lot of history, military history, and uh, listening to one particular war movie podcast, but it's making it's been making me watch a lot more war movies, and I think it's appropriate since Roy is uh, a soldier. You know, he's a war fighting um, combat model, and I think he really brings up the um, very internalized in this case because it's very personal, but the juxtaposition that you see in war movies of um, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, right? So like. Deckard is sort of the sanctioned government authority. He's a cop. He has license to kill these replicants, right? And without getting into are they people, are they not people, he's still licensed to kill these living things that have emotion and have response, et cetera. And he obviously gets PTSD from it. So I think that the analogy works, you know? Um, whereas Roy is considered an outlaw and a rebel and uh, whatever you want to call it. You know, you can make comparisons to the Viet Cong in Vietnam, et cetera. And so it really does depend sometimes whose side you're on or whose side you can empathize with when you see, you know, like the Syrian conflict and you're talking about Assad's regime versus U.S. troops versus rebels. But again, any kind of non-government faction who is fighting for their lives and their livelihood and their people is going to do things that are illegal, uh, which is exactly what Roy is doing. So. That's a lot of how I view Roy is how he justifies the killing that he does. Now, granted, we don't see the off-world shuttle scene where they kill however many, 21 people. I can't remember how many it was on the off-world uh, shuttle, 15 people. But arguably, some of them may have been civilians, you know, so we don't know. Were there, women, were there children? You know what I mean? Like if, if, if the film were to show that scene and you're literally – seeing Roy killing children, I think it would have made us feel a lot different about the characters. So it's, it's complicated, but um, I think moral ambiguity is a part of soldiering, especially when it comes to those sort of government versus sanctioned soldiers versus rebels um, kind of interactions. So I think that's also a part of it that we don't, we don't talk about that much in Blade Runner because it's not a war movie, but it's there. Jumping off of that, um, like you said, he's a machine and he's, he's built for that. Um, and you were, you were thinking about how he justifies what he's doing. Um, I like to go back and the way I see Roy is that a, a lot of the time I look at him as kind of like, I mean, like this animal and he's cornered, you know, and it also ties in with what you said, Jamie, about having this like freedom that scares you. He is dealing with death right behind him. So he's going to do desperate things and he it, killing is in his genetic makeup literally like that's what he was built to do so it's a means to an end for him and he, he he's able to do it in such a horrific way I think partially at least it reads to me this way partially because he is he's literally fighting for his life and he wants more out of life and he's going to do absolutely anything and everything to get that and then just um, the spontaneity of that is scary 
and the freedom that he has to do that is scary. And it's scary to me. And I know like Jamie, you said it was scary to you. And that's why I think it's entirely meant to be that way. It's entirely meant to be intimidating. Um, he pops out out of nowhere. You never know when, whether he's going to cry, laugh or, or murder you in, in a heinous way. So it, it, it is, it's meant to be scary. Like a desperate animal is going to be the most vicious animal. Don't you think if, if death is right behind them? Well, Leon. What's going on? I... There's only two of us now. We're stupid and we'll die. And going back to from an acting standpoint, I think what really might have been part of what helped Rutger in creating this character is, like you said, he had this background and all this... um um improvisational like sort of free theater where you are encouraged to really go the distance and and um try different things so he, he has a very solid background in that and part of i think part of that lended itself to the characterization and then the character itself roy even as just a seed of what the character would become enabled rutger to be like okay like i can trust where my instincts as an actor are going with this and I can feel free because there's never been anything like this before. And because of the high stakes that he has, I can explore those avenues, which may not normally be explored by any other character. And that's, that's part of why it's so illuminating on the screen. And it's, it's why you can't stop watching him because he's so unpredictable. I, I get the same visceral reaction when I watch really good performances of the Joker um, from Batman. Um, especially oh, yeah. uh, uh, Heath Ledger is my favorite portrayal as, as many people really like that. He's, he's kind of becoming the standard. Um, and I think watching his Joker, you, you never know what background story he's going to tell. You never know if he's going to make a joke, like pull out a fake flower that squirts you or shoot you in the face. And like, that is what the Joker is at his kernel. And I think Roy as a character has a little bit of that, that sort of dangerous mystery that you could e either be co totally entranced and enthralled with him or you could die <laughs> you could just be killed by him if you don't if it, it depends on what he's feeling and, and what he thinks he needs at the moment so. it's actually a really interesting thing to unpack there at some point the joker because they are sort of like there's there's a lot of interesting oh my parallels God. but what's what's yeah. fascinating is that you know, the Joker's agenda is basically chaos. Like, there, there is no actual, like, cause behind the Joker. And likewise, Batty's cause is not the liberation of replicants. It's his own life. So they're both operating in a vicious way within a closed system and trying to open it up. And I think that's something actually interesting to unpack. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, totally. I, you know, I actually never thought about that, Micah, but that was a great character comparison. And strangely enough... By complete coincidence, either yesterday or today, I was reading a quote from Heath Ledger's character, and I'll have to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly, but it's simple enough. And basically he was saying, uh, madness is like gravity. All it takes is one little push to go over the edge. And that really remind that quote now, and you comparing him to the joke comparing Roy Batty to the Joker, it really is, if you watch Roy Batty, he is very close to acting like a crazy person. You know what I mean? It's really difficult. Not only is he unpredictable, but once you're watching his uh, his thought process and his decisions, it's hard to understand 
why he's saying what he's saying, why he's doing what he's doing. Like even, like the, the classic moment where he kisses Tyrell right before he kills him. There are, you know, 12 different interpretations of why Roy did that. And nobody's right. Like it's all, it's all a possibility and it could have all happened in terms of, um, like I won't unpack it all here because we've done it in other episodes. But um, yeah, I never made the comparison between sort of a half crazy character and and Roy. But what, That's what a really makes good that work? That that kiss thing and and you having and every audience member having different explanations of maybe why he did it is that Rudger himself probably had a reason in his head, and whatever that reason is, it's very real to Roy, and that's what makes it work on the screen because you can. A lesser actor would act crazy and do crazy things and say gibberish and and do a backflip and fart. But like, it has to really be grounded in that character's really initial like needs that they they need something desperately. They need to live. They need to survive. And and whatever actions that they take, it's grounded in that. And that's what makes it so magical. And like, whoa, that's unpredictable. But like, it obviously means something to him. You know, like. But the important part in this particular character, I think, and we've, we've touched on this, is that it's linked to instinct, not reasoning or logic. Because when you hear Rutger talk about the character, he says, yeah, it wasn't the poet in me. It was the poet in Roy that came out. Does it make sense that Roy's a poet since he was programmed and he was created? No, it doesn't make sense. But he had that instinct. And I think a lot of his dialogue and a lot of his actions are like that. So you're right. It's... There's a, what's the word, Patrick? Indelible? Uh, no, the long word. Verisimilitude? With a v. Verisimilitude? <laughs> there's, there's a verisimilitude <laughs> in um, his actions really embody something true and something that someone would really do. But I think that the performance and what he really feels, he's channeling what the character's instinct would be, not necessarily a logical, rational thought process. Right. But I agree and with you. And that sure. is where I think we can talk about the word indelibility again, because I think, <laughs> and I, I want to jump in quick because I, I don't want, for example, people who don't love Roy's character to think that we're trying to equate the Joker with Roy on a moral level because they're not at all like one another. But they're both indelible, right? They're both legendary characters who broke out beyond what they were made for, right? The Joker was an early member of Batman's rogues gallery. He's a villain. Villains are not supposed to be the ones you root for. Villains are not supposed to be the ones with their own comic book spinoff lines. Villains are not supposed to be the ones with the t-shirts. But the Joker is one of those villains who has transcended what he was created for, which was to be a foil for Batman, right? Whereas Batman is everything dark and serious and weighty. The Joker is the antithesis of that, which just happens to be actual chaos, right? But chaos in the guise of laughter, which is a brilliant idea, and that's why he's a fucking amazing character. Batty, likewise, is antithetical to Deckard. And the way that he's antithetical to Deckard shows the similarities between them, just like the ways in which the Joker and Batman are antithetical highlight the similarities between those two characters and why when they have confrontations, it's so fascinating because you see two essentially bipolar ideas that are also can only exist in the presence of each other, right? The Joker without Batman is nothing. Batman without the Joker is also nothing. Likewise, Deckard without Batty is lifeless and listless ridden with PTSD and guilt, and basically living a life as a depressive. Batty, without Deckard, dies without getting his actual mission accomplished, which he does fucking accomplish, which is he imparts more life into the world in some way. And it wasn't his life, but he did impart life with 
passing that to Deckard in his final moments. He accomplishes what he came back all the way from Mars to do. What's fascinating here is that it's hard to talk about morals without getting, like, philosophical and long-winded about it, but I think it's important to talk about the moral universe in which this film operates, okay? When we look at, for example, slave revolts, when we talk about the Amistad, for example, we don't villainize the slaves. They did horrible shit, okay? On any objective level, many of the things that happened during slave revolts were terrifying. They, you know, disembowelments, I mean, there's, there's, you know, a lot of this in history, but we don't look at them as villains because they, they were operating in a system of morality that they had no say in and absolutely no agency within. And in order to escape a system of moral, of moral codes that was designed specifically to subjugate them, they had to do extraordinary things that included extraordinary violence. When I look at Roy Batty, I see somebody operating so tightly confined by a moral system that he has no say in that it is killing him actively and killing everybody like him. And he has the bravery. He's literally a slave, so your comparison is totally Right, he's an actual slave. And a slave, not only just a slave, a slave, like you said, programmed specifically for murder. He was an actual death machine created as a death machine that ended up a fucking poet, right? He is so interesting for that reason. But it's important to, to, to remember that he his murders in this thing are not cold-blooded killings, and they're likewise not sowing chaos like the Joker with his like mass murdering things. Batty is single-handed. He's trying to escape the confines of a moral universe that has entrapped him against his will that he had no say into, and in which he will die unless he can somehow escape it. And what is beautiful is that the initial way that that death of Tyrell, rather, was portrayed was very different than what he intended and what we get now with the final cut, which is, you know, that it, it was laden with expletives, and it was very angry. What we get with the final cut is what that scene actually plays like, which is a scene of love that is so all-encompassing and so terrible that all it can do is burn to the ground. And I think what you see with him and Tyrell, you see the man who created the moral universe that has subjugated Roy, and that Roy has traveled so far and done such crazy shit to escape. And they come together, and not with hatred, but with a kiss. They come together with a moment of absolute connection, right? And that connection is so intense and so fervent that it can only end with death. And I think that when I look at him killing Tyrell, I don't look at it as a cold-blooded killing. I look at it as love and hate too great for the world that had no outlet other than something terrible. Um, But I also want to say one last thing about this. When I talk about Batty as being my personal hero, quote-unquote, within the film, I'm not saying I don't have issues with his actions in this movie. I have huge issues with it. And I will also say that for most of my life, I did not feel this way about him. My feelings on Batty changed when I came off antidepressants in high school. And that's, that's honestly the truth. For a long time, I didn't remember what it was like when I was actually myself, because I had issues with clinical depression. And when I uh, saw Batty in that state as a younger kid, uh, I saw him very much through the lens of he's like a villain. And especially, like, I always think back to the scene with Chu. Like, that is a scene that still is very scary, especially if you look at him as a villain. He is so frightening and so subtle and so sneering and just and he just seems so powerful and conniving and, like, sadistic, you know, when he unplugs his, his um, suit. But uh, now when I watch that scene, I see... Somebody who, uh, whose life, it's not like he was just taking a pill to make himself more quote-unquote normalized. He was born in a system that would not allow him to actually discover who he really would have been without that system being in place, right? And that is a fucking terrible place to be, especially if it's going to also kill you. And so, like, I had the option of, like, coming off my antidepressants and getting counseling for that, and that was a really great thing for me. And, and when I did that, I, I remembered that there were gradations of color in the world that I'd forgotten what they really looked like. And Batty, to me, is somebody who 
fights um, and it took extraordinary lengths to bring color back to a world that had been robbed from him uh, and that he had never actually seen in color before. And I, and I just, I feel like that's a really, um, a really beautiful goal. So, but I don't think that it is necessarily a moral goal in any conceivable universe because it does include murder. And I also, though, last thing I want to say about this before I finally shut up is that I likewise, Jamie, have the same reaction you do. I don't know how I feel about him. Even today, even though I've established that he's my favorite character in a movie, I still have issues with him. I still feel that sense of ambivalence and that sense of being pulled in different directions. And I don't feel that with Rachel, and I don't feel that with Deckard, but all of my favorite characters in any movie of all time are the ones that I have a harder time with. They're the characters that I can't stop thinking about, and they're pushing on some button within me in my mind that I don't have a label for yet, but it's being pushed, and I'm feeling it, and it's driving me crazy. And so I feel like anytime I feel that button pushed, I have to question why and what it's telling me about myself and the way that I see the world. And there's no other way to get at that outside of music and film and poetry. And I think that um, when we talk about indelibility, it's things that make us, that push buttons within our own minds that we didn't know existed to be pushed in the first place. And because of that, they illuminate that button and then there's no going back because for the rest of our lives, we will know that something is back there. We will never forget it. And to me, that's what indelibility means. And that's why he's an indelible character. I will say that, I never thought fully as much as we've discussed replicants being slaves and all of that. And I've been a part of those discussions. I don't think I've followed through with that thought process with Roy that he is a slave and that what will slaves do when, when slaves want their freedom, not only is he a slave to the system, he's a slave to his lifespan. So life is crushing in on him. And I think if I think about him in that, in that light because part of me thinks he killed jf sebastian who is this sort of innocent bystander but then i also thought but jf sebastian wasn't an innocent bystander jf sebastian was a part of the system creating these slaves he was a part of that machine he was not innocent um and the world is as such at that point in in the blade runner universe where people have convince themselves that what we're doing is okay that we can create these humanoids and we can have them do things for us and it's fine because they're not really human right they aren't born they're created they're built all of these things um and they've made concessions um so it's actually a really large epiphany for me right now in terms of processing him because i yeah and it also kind of it's a light bulb for ava too because ava is also in a similar position She's subjugated to the will. I mean, Ava is also a machine. She's not human. Um, so there's a little bit difference there, a lot of bit difference. However, in terms of Roy, and I think people have a fascination with beautiful people doing terrible things. And um, Roy Batty is a beautiful man doing terrible things. Um, and I think our, our media today is full of that. It's full of shows where beautiful people are doing horrible things and people are eating popcorn and watching episode after episode, whether it's Big Brother or all sorts of shows where it's like tragedy is entertainment. And that's always been also another morally ambiguous thing for me, like watching tragedy is entertainment and feeding in that system where really gorgeous people are doing you know whether it's or they're subjugated to terrible things like naked and afraid most of those people on that show are beautiful and just in reference to roy he's also like that he's he's not just it would be different if it was like leon where leon's kind of scary 
you know, Leon's this really scary looking. Not His pretty. Features are kind of large, and he's not. He's not pretty at all. He's not even handsome. He's not ugly, but he's he's frightening. He's frightening. So when when Rachel kills Leon, it's like oh, whew, you know. Whereas with Roy, when Roy dies, we're we're all bound up about it. But I think it's different when there's a beautiful person doing something beautiful slash scary. I think we have a different response to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think actually it helps me process them. Just even for myself, coming from ancestors who were slaves and what they had to do to find their freedom and the people that they killed. And we don't have a problem with it because you can't keep people slaves. And if you're part of that system and they're fighting for their lives, things are going to happen. And that's just how it happens, you know? And we don't even question that. And yet we do. We are aware of it too. Like we talk about Um, it and we acknowledge it and we make a a moral choice within ourselves. We do calculus and we say it was worth it because it was in the cause of freedom and to escape a system that they had no control over, the only way out of it included death, right? Yeah, but I, I, I agree. I mean, obviously, we're talking about a super complex issue. And while I've always looked at the replicants as slaves, except for maybe Rachel, just because she lives a little bit cushier life until everything breaks down, I've never made the direct comparison to North American African slave trade. Um, but there are obviously a lot of comparisons there. I think it's worse than the North American African slave trade, to be honest with you. At least slaves were taken from their home. They were people. They are always they always have been people. And they were said, no, you're not people and you're not people and you're coming with us and you're not people and you're coming with us and you're going to do the work and we're going to make money off you. Whereas with replicants, they're like, oh, we've made you to be exactly this and you're never going to be anything. At least with African-Americans, there was a conversation going on throughout their their enslavement and their freedom process. And today still, there was always conversations. These people are, are not, these are people and they have agency. Whereas with replicants, it was never, even in our own conversations, well, she's not really human. Like with Rachel, we've, we've had this discussion. Well, is she technically human? No. Like we, so we've already sort of had conversations where we've agreed in some places here or there. No, they're not human. So what happens when we say? Oh yeah, I mean, how how many how many times have we seen the more aggressive people on this side of the opinion say it's not the love scene isn't rape? You can't rape someone that's not a human, right? Like people have actually said mm-hmm. that, like that's an opinion, yeah. um, and they yeah. stand by. But I really show. think the reason I brought the comparison up again is because depiction in history makes a difference, and so there's a huge. Whether you're talking about the treatment of Native Americans throughout American history the slave trade or replicants in this film, there's a huge difference if you show, right? Especially like old Cowboys and Indians movies versus post eighties sort of television and film about native Americans where you're shown like who you show getting raped and pillaged and burned down in their village makes a difference. If you see Indians rebelling but burning down a white village full of women and children and you know knocking kids against walls etc it does spike your morality it, you understand the concept even if you are for the plight of those people same with slaves if if a slave rebellion sort of kills their captors and gets out and goes to the bahamas or some other country or wherever and escapes to freedom versus if they are in a city and are cornered and are caught and start murdering everybody, women, children, whatever, you could still argue, well, you know, it's not that child's fault, but he's still the product of a system that created this. And so again, I insist that 
had we shown had the film shown Roy and his uh, compatriots murdering a whole uh, you know off-world show for the people, it would affect our viewing. So you know, it's a lot of it is what you're aware of and what you're actually seeing when it comes to framing an actual story. It really affects but um, your heart. I'll I'll sort of submit this, and this is whatever. Uh, everyone had seen the last few episodes of or the last couple, well, the last few episodes of Game of Thrones, and there's a scene where Daenerys is on the dragon, and they're ringing the bell because they said, oh, if we ring the bell, can you not? And you see it in her face, and you see it in her face, and we sort of know that this this moment in history is coming, at least Game of Thrones history, and she rips right through that town, and she burns up women and children and everybody. And for me, my in my head, I'm thinking, this was going to happen. What did you expect what did you expect when you did this to her people, her her family, her and her sort of her uh, lady in waiting? I can't remember her 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 um, you know that African American woman who was her helper, I suppose. Whatever her name was, they beheaded her. Masande. Yeah, they beheaded her. And so in that moment, when I'm seeing Daenerys torch this city, I'm thinking I was okay with it. Not that I was okay with like, yeah, kill that kid, but almost like. You reap what you sow. You're going to do this to her. You're going to taunt her. She's going to do this. You're pushing her to this point. And so I think it might have been different. Like, okay, so if I would have seen Roy Batty kill a child, I would have been like, okay, get rid of the parents. Maybe, okay, if you're killing a child, I have some issue with that. Um, but at the same time, no revolution has has happened without bloodshed. And probably in every revolution, whether it's the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and any time uh, countries have fought where the people are fighting for their democracy or for their freedom or for their freedom from other, um, like England or wherever, there are casualties involved and some ambiguous casualties. You're just not going to get around that. It's going to happen. And so as I, if I can contextualize it that way, I'm okay with Roy Batty, actually. I'm okay with what he did. Not to say that I would be like, yeah, sure, kill him. It makes more moral sense for me, um, especially coming from an ancestry of people who probably did very similar things. At, and, but at the same time, you can't just factor in what the what Roy had done, the people Roy had killed. You also have to understand, and if you kind of use the slavery comparison, what were they doing to replicants? How were they abusing replicants and killing them and raping them and all of these horrible things? So then a replicant decides, well, I'm going to do the same thing to you, and now we're all outraged? Fuck that. No, it doesn't work that way. Welcome to Jamie changing his mind, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what I was trying to get at before with the um, the idea of the animal and like being cornered and being followed so so closely by death. Like, of course, I mean, I'm I don't know, not maybe not of course, but yes, he's going yeah, to do these totally. horrific things because the thing that he needs depends on it. He needs his freedom and he wants to live. He needs to live, so he's gonna kill to get the information on how to do it, and he's gonna he's he's doing whatever it takes, and it. it just plays right back into that so that's that's what i was trying to get at with that um sort of comparison to the animal like that's what people do like they need the, their freedom and they're going to do anything it takes and yes it comes at great cost but you know it, it depends on whose point of view you're looking at it from if you're looking at it from roy's point of view it makes sense that he would do that if you're looking at it from tyrell's point of view it's horrific it's terrifying um but yeah 
I think it's it's worth point. This is something we never actually unpacked on the show before in, in any detail. But there there are like we've all been saying, and you guys both have just said recently, there have there are entire past lives that were not shown off world in this thing, and we're aware of it. It's alluded to. We hear little bits and pieces of it. We get some information, but by and large, all we have to go on is the evidence we get in the film itself, which is the ways that the replicants act and the ways that they're talked about by the people who subjugate them, right? So the, being, you know, talked about as objects, you know, Beauty and the Beast being talked about as almost like they're not, you know, in the room with them because they're just kind of just objects to discuss like that. Um, but like you're saying, th there is a whole continuum that this is you know, unfolding on, and we're only seeing the, the tip of it. But before this, there were complex lives that these replicants lived of subjugation, of terror, of presumably love and presumably fears and all these other things. What is interesting with Batty in particular, and why I think doing an episode on him is so exciting, but doing an episode, for example, on Leon would not be, isn't necessarily a beauty issue. Although, Jamie, I do I do see what you're saying with that, and I'm not saying this invalidates it or anything like that. But to me, the reason why they're so different is because Batty is the only one who I have no question in my mind has a full life behind him by the time this movie starts. And I want to unpack why I feel that way. Can I add when just I one thing while Chris, you're saying that? Yeah. I think this is just me yeah. being completely honest. It's easier. It would, I see his color a little bit. I see his, he's white. Um, and generally white people are responsible for a lot of killing in, in this country and everywhere. So I have to sort of turn that off because it's easier for me to mm. judge, to judge Interesting. him and to think were you monster because a lot of them are. Um, so I have to sort of, Self-correct. Anyways, we can talk about that at someone's. Interesting. That's, we haven't we're going to need a part two on not this, only is by he the white, way. He's this like is the... no way. White male. Yeah, we will. Yeah. No, it's not, because we're just getting somewhere. Not only is he white, he is specifically like an Aryan Ubermensch. Yes. He's, he's specifically yes. like the most white you can be, right? He looks he looks like a Nazi. Like, he, he is the ideal sort of Nordic, northern white male. Ideal, quote-unquote, in terms of mid-20th century uh, notions of and one last thing i'm sorry one yeah. last thing um uh, if you think about lucifer yeah. from the bible lucifer is uh as is depicted or is is um sort of portrayed as this beautiful creation by god that's also deadly and so you have roy spouting out this very biblical liturgical these quotes here and there like all of these gorgeous things and then you see this other half of him that's deadly and so you're you're also trying to visually and audibly reconcile this angel with this devil and a slave and just to add something else to your to where you, i think you're going patrick you said you said it's very easy to see that he has a very full life behind him which is one of the many reasons that makes him so interesting and why we're having this whole like we're talking about multi-part episode about him but another thing that you can really see when you watch him moving throughout that world and you watch him navigating each scene with each person he comes in contact with he has an agenda and he has a will and it's incredibly clear um and that's another reason why he's so interesting to watch. And he shouldn't be. That's what's interesting. So what we have visually is somebody with no uh, sort of like disempowering characteristics, right? He is a strong, beautiful white man 
operating in a society set up to favor strong, beautiful white men, just like society still is, right? He should not be disempowered. And yet there are intersectionalities going on with that character that we have to unpack. And to do that, we have to fucking empathize with him. And to empathize with him, we have to see him as more than just what we're presented with. And that is why he's unforgettable. Everybody else in this movie, not actually that's an enormous overstatement, the other replicants in this movie are what we think they are when we see them, right? Leon, although I have to say my Except heart Rachel. breaks for Leon a little bit. And yeah, okay, Rachel too. Yeah, but that, yeah right, she is also, so I, I forget basically. she's a replicant sometimes, but you're right. So the, I'm talking about the, the ones who escaped, right? So specifically, like Leon, my heart breaks for him with the pictures. Whenever they talk about his pictures, I feel so sad because to me, that was everything he was holding on to. That was his semblance of becoming more than what he was born for. And he did find it. He did have his pictures, right? That's important to me. And that's important to him. And I get that. Pris, I don't really see anything in her other than kind of like this lost doll almost. Like she's sort of completely untethered from reality and she's sort of lost it. And she, I don't get like the sense that she's um, trying to be, you know, seductive or something. I, I get the sense that she's just basically a confused child. You know, I get the childlike sense from her quite a lot. Um, with with Zora, who I, again is just an, an absolutely amazing character. So, he, uh, you know, with Zora, she is the closest to a baddie that we get, I think, because we, because we do get a lot of a sense that she has, she's extremely driven, like Joanna incredibly beautifully said, to fly. She has a dream of flying, right? But we don't get much time to live with her. So we don't really see too much of that, but it's hinted at, and then she's snatched right when we kind of figure it out. But with baddie, we get time to luxuriate in that with him. We get time to see, oh my God, I saw something and I made an expectation about it. And I thought I knew who he was. I thought not only was he a powerful white man who could kill people, he was a villain. He was presented to me as a very cut and dried antagonist. And I know how to, what this is going to be like. And then that is constantly shifted and constantly turned and constantly changed. And then in the end, he's revealed for who he really is, which is actually everything. Just like I said on the Paul episode, what's amazing is that we find out that he is all of those things. He is the male, he's the female, he's in between, he is the, pow the powerful white man, he is the scared the scared intersectionality of diversity, he is the uh, a person seeking power in a world that has disempowered him, and in doing so become extremely powerful within the world that he operates. He is so many conflicting things. And that is something that could not exist outside of a human experience. And a human, I say in quotes, not like Homo sapiens, but a human in the ways that we think about humanity, which is whatever approximates having a soul is to you, right? Human in the sense of more than just something created to kill, more than just something created to fuck, more than just something created to carry heavy loads, something that can create itself. And what we see with Roy by the end of this film is something who has something becoming somebody who and has created. That's himself. why he's so dangerous. And I think that he's found true freedom, yeah. and that terrified them, terrifies them. Right, right, and they don't know what to do with it. Right, just like men didn't know what to do with women during the suffrage movement. Like they didn't understand. Still don't. Why and still don't. Like why would we cede power to these people who you know we've had enjoyed a power differential from for so long? Batty represents the world breaking, just like we got in twenty forty nine, right? Like that that is that is what he represents. The first indication of, as far as we can tell, and um, and I think that that's the fucking miracle of that character and of that performance and of this film is that we don't think about these things. Like, I would never have thought about any of this shit if I didn't have Blade Runner in my life. And if I didn't have all of you in my life, I really would not, I would not have made space to think about this. I would have thought about him as just being, you know, an interesting villain in this movie 
who just like in the book is cool and I can appreciate him, but like, I'm never going to think about him. I mean, I have dreams of Batty. I have dreams of him off world. I have, I'm fucking crying. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I have dreams of him fucking floating through space. Like I think about this character all the time, the things that he saw, what he went through to see those things. They are fucking amazing. And I will never see that because I, at the end of the day, am just a fucking human, right? And that is a miracle that we can go into a movie presented with this villain who can come out and make us illuminate things in ourselves that we have no other vehicle for illuminating, you know? I think that's just, uh, it's just, it's just an absolutely miraculous character. And I'm so fucking sad that we lost Rucker Hauer. Because we're talking about this, I can't stop thinking about that, like, that he's, he is gone and that, um, this character who has had this effect on, on very many people and caused me to reevaluate myself, um, lives as a point in time that will be left behind, you know, like yeah. we will never find him again. And I think that's, uh, I'm, his, I'm feeling it in this moment. That's death, why I'm a little bit I, I would say really, really is the first death where it feels like the character died. Like we know in the movie, the characters died. We've watched that over and over and over. But really, Roy Batty has passed on. Like, I've never been able to separate the two. And I've never been able... I might feel that way with Sigourney Weaver when she dies. But I felt it when when I heard the news that Roy... That Rudger Hauer passed away. It felt like that sense when Princess Leia heard Luke. Like, you just felt this, like, the world shifting. That Roy... Roy Batty has passed through in the year that he did in the movie. Like, it was this... And with the amount of poetry that he left in the film really um quietly sort of alone with one other person uh, i mean i don't know if that's how he died in real life but yeah really i mean I, I it's it's pretty it's pretty profound to bring some perspective to this and talk about art again um i think when you read about people's lives especially when you go back further than like 100 years ago but even 50 years ago Everyday people, even that weren't artists, used to write each other letters. You know, I'm reading about Alexander von Humboldt and like Nietzsche, and they, they wrote like two, three thousand letters a year. And most of them were a lot, a lot of times they were kept. So you can go back and actually read these archives of like what these people were thinking in their life and their exchanges with people that they loved. Most of us nowadays don't have the benefit of that. And if you're not an artist, and you're not writing letters and you don't keep a journal. And, and I know people do these things, but like I think about my life, it's like you don't have the opportunity necessarily to leave this legacy behind and to have people be affected by who you were as a person and your work for like, you know, arguably the rest of eternity, depending on how long things are kept. We don't know. Cinema's only a little bit over 100 years old, you know, but, but I do read books from people from 2,500 years ago all the time. My point being... There's things on my Facebook timeline that people can go back and see about what I was doing or pictures that I posted, whatever. But think about the legacy that someone like Rutger Hauer gets to leave behind, right? He's going to continue to inspire people for hundreds of years after 2019, the year that him and his character died, arguably. Um, And that's really special. And I think that the three of you as artists 
have something to relate to with that because some of your work will continue. And as long as someone keeps paying our freaking Podbean dues, this podcast will be in the ether. But, you know, I, I count myself as fortunate in that because I have a platform as well to share with fans and to bring in, which, again, we talked about in the next episode, we'll bring in people's comments that we asked to call in and write in about how they felt about Rucker Hour and about Ray Batty. Um, but it's really great to have an opportunity to sort of share your ideas and share your thoughts. And uh, when you're an exceptional uh, artist of that level, it's that much more impactful because we can talk to a thousand people or however many people listen to this podcast and, and grows in the future, which is amazing. Rucker has been viewed by millions and millions of people. And that's really incredible. So while his death ended a man's life, and I'm sure that's how his wife and kids feel, and while we can argue that his death ended that character, um, really his spirit continues on. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious, but that, that's really true. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk about other people, but this episode's about him. And I, I, really, find, uh, I really find comfort in that. And I just want to say, just in, in, in passing, another thing that might be, you know, borderline corny, but, it, but it's, it's real... And it's okay to say is that um, just as Batty dies giving life to Deckard, you know, Rucker Howard died giving life to so many of us. So many of us who saw this film at a dark time in our lives, like I did, and so many people who um, didn't realize that they weren't activated as humans really until watching this movie and realized, holy shit, I do want more life. And that's what's amazing. And I, I guess the, the last thing that I will say um, is that you know his his line that's delivered at like the ultimate moment of darkness for him in this movie and delivered with such ferocity and such quiet terror of course is i want more life but think about what it is outside of that moment think about what that actually means think about it like the way you say it to yourself when you feel alone or you feel confused or you don't feel understood or you feel like you don't have people in the world who get you and care about you and you like wake up and you go to the beach one morning, you look out and you say, I want more life, you know, I want more fucking life. And that is such a moment of decision that is so hard to arrive at because there are people who want more life and they can't bring themselves to do it and they end it, you know, and, uh, and, and that the sense that, that Batty, um, fought so hard against that idea, so hard against the idea that obsolescence was acceptable so hard against the idea that his that his destiny was written by anybody else but him that is an amazing thing and so if you say i want more life the way that he felt it which is i want more life and you fucking repeat that as a mantra then batty will live in you and all of us forever that character is uh will eternally beguile and inspire all of us sounds like a good place to end part one of this conversation I have more that I want to add, but I would just, we all do. So, well, everyone, everyone, uh, thanks, thanks for listening. Guys. We're going to uh, be back for the part two, probably after this episode, you know, two weeks after this episode comes out, just because we've, this obviously is an unfinished conversation. Thanks for listening. We're going to get to everyone's um, voicemails uh, and comments, comments and voicemails, uh, just some housekeeping things. We're throwing an event in November, downtown Los Angeles, November 13th. Wednesday, starting at 12 p.m., right? Yep. So if you want more information, go to bladerunnerpodcast.com. You can buy tickets. Um, you can go to Eventbrite. We're selling tickets there as well. Uh, it's going to be a great, great event. 
tickets are actually selling really well, I would say. Um, I, so shockingly. It's going to be a, a real legit party. There's going to be a lot of people there. And you can even ask Joanna Cassidy about the dream of flying in person. Where else are you going to get a chance to do that? Come yes. on. BladeRunnerPodcast.com slash event. Paul Salmon. Charles DeLazarica is going to be there. It's going to be really a great time. Me and Dan and Patrick and maybe Micah. I don't know. I hope so. Hopefully, um, Micah. I would love to come. We'll um, see. But there's going to be a lot of us there. It's going to be a really fun time. So check out that event at BladeRunnerPodcast.com. Also, we released a audio drama called Gethsemane and that's available through Podbean right now. We're going to relaunch that in a few months or at some point and talk about that more. So that's all I have. Thanks yeah, for nice listening. To have you again, Thanks Micah. Micah for coming on. It's great to talk to you Let's again. You You're Thank always you on these really powerful yeah, episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, coincidence or <laughs> all right, guys. All right. We love you guys. Right. Thank you for listening. Thanks. See you guys later. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.